great to have all of you guys here. My name is Mark, and uh, one of the pastors uh, here in this community. I want to just get right to it tonight. So if you're here uh, wanting a song and dance, then you are at the wrong place. I want to ask you guys this question uh, just to get us going here. Uh, Andrew, if you can put up that first question for us, that would be uh, wonderful. If you can, fire the laser now. Uh, the question that I'm asking Andrew to put up is, uh, is have you met with God today? And um, I realize that many of you, you're off in your understanding of this question because you have a misinterpretation of what meeting is. Uh, many of you guys thought you were on a date and you were not, okay? Um, so I, I need to do a little like defining here what, what meeting is. Have you met with God today implies that you understand the term meet. When Jesus goes on the mountainside and he, he meets with God, he's not meeting with God so that his father will tell his son that he's proud of him. In other words, he hasn't gone to pray so that God will applaud his faithfulness. Jesus goes to the mountain to pray because Jesus believes that there is nothing better than communing with the Father. There's nothing more that he needs. There's nothing more that he could ever want. That communing with God the Father is literally all that he needs. And so I've been trying my entire life to gain the approval of my dad. Trust me. And there have been certain moments in my life, uh, kind of few and far between, where my dad has said that he's proud of me. And if our righteousness or our prayer or our pursuit of God is so that he sees us as prayer warriors or good Christians or soldiers for him or something of the like, we're misinterpreting the blessing that it is to be connected to him. So uh, if you go to Starbucks, how many of you guys like Starbucks, okay? I hear, though I never go there, I hate coffee, I hate smelling like coffee. That's the, that's the worst part of going into a coffee shop. You smell like a mixture of Old Spice, you know, and corpse the rest of the day, okay? Um, so I don't like that smell. I don't, but I know many of you guys go to Starbucks, and I hear that Starbucks on 5th Street is like Matthias Campus East, okay? So listen, let's say you go in there, right? And you hadn't planned on it, but you see a good friend. There is a difference between greeting saying hi, passing some pleasantries, maybe giving a holy kiss as it were. There's a difference between that and meeting with them. Even a random meeting. Like a meeting implies intentionality. A meeting implies, hey, listen, it's so good to see you. Who would have thought that we would have run into the place that we spend 24 hours a day at? It's crazy to think, right? So would you like to sit down for a while and let's, let's talk and let's catch up? Then you would maybe walk away and you would say, I met with that person. But if you just said hi, if you just like waved your, you know, your pageant wave, um, if you just maybe bought a coffee, you would say that you greeted them. You would say that you saw them. You would not say that you met with them. So I want to ask this question then. Have you met with God today? There's a, a wide range of answers, right? Uh, some of you would be like, did I meet with God today? You don't even know. Like you can't even begin to imagine what God showed me through his word. You can't even begin to understand the communion that I had with him. You, like, it, I would, we would spend hours dialoguing about it. And others of you, 
um, it was like a nice greeting or a passerby or others of you uh, only praying or reading God's word so that God would applaud you and still others of you, you're here tonight because you thought this would be a meeting with friends. Um, you're here tonight because a friend dragged you along or a friend's been inviting you for, for weeks and you're like, fuck, like, dear heavens, like, to get you off my back, okay? Yes, I will go, right? Um, and maybe, just maybe, the people in here that thought that God wouldn't want to meet them because you're too far gone or you're too far of a doubter or you're too much of a sinner, I'm going to pray right now that the God that I believe in strongly would not just meet us here, but that for some of you would literally confront you face to face. And so maybe whenever we would walk away from this evening, the answer to this question for each of us, both individually and corporately, would be yes. So I'm going to pray for that. And if you're just joining us, you're like, what in the world's going on here? Mm-hmm. It's great to have you here. All right? It's great to have you here. God, like only you can right now, confront us face to face. And I would even pray, God, that just a glimpse of the, the train of your glory would be seen in this place here tonight. And God, I specifically pray for my friends um, who walked in here far, far away from any thought of meeting with you. God, show your power in loving what maybe feel like the unlovable here tonight. In your great and holy name, amen. So I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. We study the Bible verse by verse through chapters, through books, through stories and journeys. Uh, we've certainly been on a long one in Exodus. We knew that we would get here. Like when we chose Exodus, when we felt like God leading us to preach this and teach this, we knew we would get to the wilderness. And, and I say that in more ways than one. Some of you guys who have been with us for a few weeks, you're like, Dear heavens, if we have to spend one more week hearing about a cubit, right, like I'm never coming back ever, right? And yet somehow I think you'd agree that through these strange detailed texts, there have been tremendous power from God's word because it's living and active. And the reason why is the main issue in the detail of the tabernacle and the tent and the priestly garments and all the things we've been studying the issue of the detail is God setting up a means for his people to meet with him. So the whole issue is worship. That's why it's interesting. Like, yeah, the priest looks super boss, and yeah, the, the tabernacle and the tent must have been a beautiful place, you know, laid with gold over acacia wood, all of that. But the issue at hand, and tonight we've, we end all of the details, is worship, is meeting with God. So uh, let's journey through these four sections, and this is going to be a whole lot of fun here. Let's start here in uh, chapter 30 of Exodus, verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. Any, anyone else just instantly, uh, you know, attach incense to like New Age, weird parties, Spencer gifts, right? Any of you guys do that? You know what I'm saying? I remember the first time uh, being a young teenager walking by Spencer Gifts and my mom like shielding my eyes, you know? Like, what's the big deal? It's a gift shop. No, it's not a gift shop. You go in there, you realize, you realize real quick it's not a gift shop. There's incense burning. I mean, you walk out. Anyway, here we go. 
not only are you going to burn incense, you're going to make an altar on which to burn incense. This is God telling Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Here we go. You shall make it of acacia wood. Of course you shall. Everything else is, it seems. Number two, here we go, verse two. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, making it, making it easy. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns, that's right, shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold. It's top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. This is just like everything else that we've seen so that it can be mobile. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry. Cue the picture while we're studying this. So um, I, uh, I'm not going to claim that I drew this. Uh, but my five-year-old did, which is really uh, incredible. So this is uh, a good reminder from where we were at last week. This is the high priest uh, walking up to this, what we're now seeing described in the scripture, the altar of incense. Uh, we saw last week the priestly garbs. You'll see kind of his shoulder blades with the black onyx stone, the breastplate with the 12 fine jewels that Brandon Castle uh, collects. You see uh, the robe and the ephod and the crown. And then the altar of incense burning. In fact, uh, if you see uh, now uh, pictures that are diagramming the altar of incense, uh, this, this burn was so powerful that often it, it came out of the tent or the tabernacle. Just on the other side of this altar is a curtain, a veil. I've been talking about this veil over and over. This veil is the veil that separates the holy place where all the priests can go in the tent from the holy of holies where only the high priest on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which was last weekend, can enter. So right before that curtain, that veil, is this altar of burning incense. Now let's see some more detail. You'll enjoy. Verse 5. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, of course, okay, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony. And somebody please see this where I will meet with you. In all the detail, in all the discussion, in all the preciseness, God's intention is to allow a means for his people to meet with him. And so they must, as he's told Moses over and over, follow to the nth degree these details. And in those details, he will meet with them. Then, verse 7, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. This sounds interesting. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron, verse 8, sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord. In other words, this incense offering is always burning. Scripturally, what in the world is incense doing here? What does it represent? This is a fair question, right? It's like, is God getting like new age-ish before there was even such a thing? Like, is this preemptive? Is God like, you know, prophesying about the power of Spencer gifts? What is incense, Right? What it represents scripturally is prayer. It's prayer that is making its way, wafting, as it were, to the Lord. And so we're seeing here a description of how Aaron, the other priests, are to make this incense offering so that the prayers as they represent are consistently making their way up. Verse 8 again, when Aaron sets up the lance at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Look at this, verse 9, really interesting. You shall not offer unauthorized incense. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? There, you know, it was like some incense are like, no, like that's, that's the naughty incense, right? 
You shall not offer unauthorized incense. You have to see this. Check this out. Or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. This is huge. Hold with me. Verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. New folks here are like, what in the world kind of cult did I show up to? Hold on. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, you shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. In other words, one day of the year, Aaron's going to cleanse this altar, but this altar is not to be used for sacrifice. In other words, there is a distinction between an altar that's for sacrifice and an altar that's for prayer. I want to make the statement like this. Atonement is not made with a prayer. Prayer is a blessing of atonement. Atonement is the releasing of sin from something. So Christ atoned our sins in his sacrifice. Atonement does not happen with a prayer. And for those of you that were in youth group in the 90s, you got really confused by this, right? You were singing DC Talk, and you were giving your life to Christ every single week, right? How many of you guys did this? You know, hey, have you been saved? Yeah, like 300 times this year. It was awesome, you know? Because what happened? Probably the same thing that I did, all right? Uh, you were excited. You know, we learned from several predecessors before us, some big evangelists in our culture. So we called, you know, all these middle schoolers up. Um, and then I, you know, we would say, hey, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you're going to repeat after me like we're brainwashing people, Right? And then after they would pray this prayer, you know, I, I would, okay, so who all prayed the prayer? I would count their hands, double them so that the numbers looked stronger, you know. Oh, my goodness, 600 people gave their life to Christ tonight. My buddies would be like, dude, there were only 200 there. I was like, fishes in the loaves, man, fishes in the loaves, you know. God just straight multiplying the salvation up in here, you know, right, right. And then, and then what, what, what I would do is I would tell them without having spoken to them, I would lie to them and I would say, all of you are going to heaven, I've repented since of those days. But what many of us learned was that prayer and atonement were connected. In other words, I pray, and then somehow, um, because of the power of my prayer, God saves. No, God saves because of the power of Christ, period. Prayer is a blessing of atonement. In other words, I can approach the throne of God in confidence through Christ, even in terms of asking for my salvation. Calling on the name of the Lord. That's what scripture says. In fact, more specifically, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, scripture says. So we confess with our mouth. But prayer is a blessing of atonement. I want you guys to see the difference, and we see it here in the delineation of this altar of incense. You're not going to make sacrifice on it because those things need to be separate. So my question is, is prayer a blessing of atonement? Would your life indicate that prayer is a blessing? That without it, I mean, your life would be feeling like nearly pointless. It's so interesting to me that when I talk to people and I say, all right, so what's your biggest struggle? Okay? And they instantly, um, you know, talk kind of sin stuff that's on the peripheral, often pornography, other sexual sin, judgment, gossip. When it comes down just to following Christ, spiritual vitality, we, we would say spiritual disciplines, the two greatest issues that I hear consistently are reading God's word and prayer. If Peter were here, okay, 
He was a disciple, hardcore dude, all right? And he were preaching, probably not with a microphone because he would, he would think that that was strange, but if he was preaching, okay, and all of a sudden he was like, all right, I want everyone to raise their hand in here who's really struggling to pray, okay? And so let's just, you know, throw out a random guess. Let's say 65, 70% of us raise our hand. I'm pretty sure he would gird up his loins and start cussing in Greek, you know? And many of us at first would be enthralled, right? We'd be like, what is he talking? Is he speaking in tongues in here? And then he would stop and say, no, I'm cussing at you, right? Because what, what he would be saying is, why in the world, if you've been saved by the grace of God, given access to the throne of God through Jesus, why would you take for granted the blessing that atonement has provided? Like Jesus goes to the mountainside, separates himself from the world to meet with God, to pray and commune, and we somehow take it for granted? Like it's sitting up on some mantle that we can go to every once in a while when crap hits the fan? That's mostly what Christian prayer is. Instead of the lifeline, instead of the pulse of our existence, it's something up here that when things get desperate, all of a sudden we bring it down. Oh, Lord, I, I know I've forgotten about you, but so-and-so's sick. And so here we are, God pleading to your throne. And thankfully, our God's faithful to himself, not us. And so he'll even answer those faithless prayers. But I look at all of you, including myself, who certainly have had seasons of struggle praying, saying it is a blessing of atonement. Here's what happens. You're scared to pray because maybe you don't know how to pray, Right? And so then you just don't pray. Well, the problem with not praying is then you don't get to see answered prayer, and then your faith doesn't increase. So it's like this circle of problem. All right, I'm not going to pray because I don't know what to say, and so, uh, okay, I'm just not going to. Well, here's what I've seen. My kids, I mean, they don't pray theological prayers, okay? I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not, you know, talking in Greek or, you know, the, God, like, would you, you know, and, and some of all, me and my wife's prayers... You know, like Saturday nights, like, Lord, please help my kids sleep in. You know, like, Lord, you could answer any prayer right now, right? And what happens is, even in the most basic prayers for my children, is as I point out that God answers their prayer, they start praying more. Why? Because their faith increases. See what I'm saying? So if you're in this cycle where you're not praying because you're fearful or you don't know what to say, as I always uh, encourage uh, young brothers and sisters who are struggling just pray that God will change your heart. In the change of your heart, First John says, he hears and he answers those prayers in his will, and he will change your heart, and you will see prayer not just as a mantelpiece, but as a lifeline, as a pulse, as your connectivity to God. And then your faith will increase, and all of a sudden you will become a prayer warrior. Every other Friday, including this Friday, two days, we're gathering with college-age students at 6 a.m., and then we go to breakfast. Uh, we've done this twice now, and it's unbelievable to see, like, college students coming at 6 a.m. and just throwing down. We had nearly 40 uh, last Friday, and we're doing it again this Friday, so come and hang with us. But the issue is prayer is a blessing of atonement. <laughs> Verse 11, let's have some fun here. The Lord said to Moses, as he's been saying a lot, and again, can you just imagine Moses taking all this in on the mountain? I mean, God has spoken a whole lot of words, right? Look at this. When you take the census, you guys know what a, you guys know what a census is? Sense, sense I? I don't, I don't know what the plural census is. When you take the census of the people of Israel, 
Then each shall give, interesting, a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Really confusing, let me explain. In the ancient Near East, uh, census, census, whatever, a census was frowned upon. Here's why it was frowned upon. I think you'd understand. Okay, why do you want to count me? Oh, you want to count me so I can fight in your battles, probably die, and then tax my family? Oh, that sounds pleasant. Like, where do I sign up for the census? You see what I'm saying? It was normally for a military count or to tax you. So people weren't running to be counted. You know what I mean? Like, in the ancient Near East, and I read some uh, mythology and also some factual stuff, is that, like, people would hide their kids and their, you know, hide your kids, hide your wife, like, back in the, the back. You know what I'm saying? Like, there would be, the, hey, listen, there, there's only one of us here, okay, and the rest of these guys are back in the back. So here's what God does. A census is going to be quintessential for the Israelites, but what it often did, and it did in the time of David, in fact, David sinned in this way, is that you do a census and then you become prideful because of your number. So instead what God does here is he connects a census with a ransom. And what he does with this ransom or payment for life is he shows how humble they should be in light of the count. Each one, verse 13, who is numbered in the census shall give this. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary uh, in case you're interested, the shekel is 20 geras. And all of you are like, uh, that, okay, I still don't know. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. It's basically like 0.5 ounces of stuff. I mean, this is not a lot. This is very minuscule amounts of money. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Verse 14. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. And, and some of you are really excited right now because you're like, I've been waiting for the scripture in the, the text that exempted me from tithing, right? Like here, 20 and, 20 and above, right? God must not count the 19-year-olds as humans. Um, that's not the case, okay? So if you're ready to get that tattoo, please erase that thought, okay? Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Verse 15, look at this, amazing. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for, for your lives. Now, this changes later. Later, we see uh, sacrifice in animals being made on your status. In other words, the more you had, if you had a ton, you'd give a bull. If you didn't have much, you'd give a bird. But at the inauguration of the census for the Israelites, everyone gives the same. The rich, the poor, equal. And then you're like, Mark, it, you know, enter Martin Luther King Jr. or something? Actually, yeah. What God is implementing into his people is that every single person is the same because they all have one need. One need. From the beginning of Adam and Eve all the way until where you and I, you sit and I stand, every single person has one need. But we sure don't treat people like that. Tomorrow night, we're doing a training here uh, on what it looks like to love a city. And one of the issues that we're training our kids in is race. Why do people look different, and why should we love them? And I love the fact that equality connects so well with the gospel. You see, issues of race are answered by the fact that we all have one need. Uh, issues of socioeconomic differences. Some of us in here have a whole lot. Okay, maybe three or four of us, right? 
Anyone here just want to admit to having a whole lot? No one. Awesome. And, um, and some of us in here, not so much. But what the unbelievable picture of the scripture is, is in the eyes of God, all of us have the same need, and that need is Jesus, all of us. My question for you is, is that the way you view people, humanity, your friends? We're very good at going through a litany of uh, judgmental questionnaires in our mind. When you see a person, there's instantly all these triggers that start going on, right? You're like, okay, how do they smell? Is there anything in their teeth? Um, can they provide a benefit for me by being friends with them? Uh, you know, are they cute? Uh, do, you know, do, is my status raised by a picture that will be posted on Facebook with me and them? You know, you instantly go through these 21, 22 categories. If they pass like 20 of the 21, then you're like, maybe I'll pursue you more. Do you understand how horrific that kind of mentality is? Uh, I, I had an email uh, emailed to me a year and a half ago or so, and uh, the subject title was Homosexual Couple, okay? Well, that, that's always an intriguing title, right? So I, I click on, hoping it wasn't spam, right? And instantly my, some virus would be put on my, my computer. Um, but the email was from, from an anonymous email, unsigned, does your church welcome homosexual couples? And my response to that email, as it is to any email uh, of that nature, was call me, and here's my cell. And the reason I, I say call me is because to answer that question, you have to hear heart, and you can't hear heart in typed words often. And they never called, but if they would have called, I would have said, what is causing you to ask that question? Because to me, that seems like a ludicrous question. Would we accept a homosexual couple? What, would we turn you away? Would we all of a sudden see uh, your lifestyle as something that would sit under judgment of hellfire and brimstone? Listen, friend, just like my sin, we wouldn't condone yours no matter what it is. At the same time, we will lovingly, graciously work through the journey of life that God has you on as we will myself, confess our sin, hold strong to the scripture, and pursue together. That's what I would say. Will we welcome you? 100%. No one's going to shun you or turn you away or kick you to the curb. At the same time, we will journey through your life decisions just like everyone else and pray that in Christ, you reveal the power of truth, whatever that may be for each of you in whatever situation. Well, what's happened is, right, they're asking that question because they've come in some churches and people have flipped them off, right? They wouldn't ask that question if they had been accepted. You guys see what I'm saying? So they walk in some church. Um, maybe your church did this, right, where they had the homeless guy, like, dress up, and it was actually the pastor. Did you guys ever hear about this? You know, and then the, the pastor, like, walks in and, you know, sits in the front seat, and then everyone, you know, is looking bad at him and stuff. And then the pastor stands up and preaches and everyone, like, gets convicted and goes, down, you know, like, what in the world is that, right? <laughs> but, but that's what's happened maybe to this couple. As they've walked in the confines of the one place that should understand grace because they've tasted the real one. And yet those same people have categorized. They haven't seen them through the compassionate eyes of God who would say, you all need Jesus. Um... They see them as people who need them more. What if God purged us of the mentality that others need Jesus more than us? You see what I'm saying? 
how beautiful would community be? How beautiful would the outreach on your campuses be? More than just words, like real stuff. Where in your heart, you instantly had grace and compassion and love. You never condone sin. You don't become a celebrator of community and then diminishing sin, no. But we all see everyone for who they are. And that's what God institutes here in the, the matching of this census is every single person who's an Israelite has the same need. And so because of that, bring this offering to the Lord. So I'm, I'm just calling you, for those of you guys that are, are racist here, your issue isn't race. For those of you guys that look down on the poor, your issue isn't looking down on the poor. Your issue is a gospel issue. Your issue is elevating yourself above someone else who you believe in your heart needs Jesus more than you. And when you do that, my friends, then you will spend your life categorizing. And I'm just telling you, good luck with that kind of life. He goes on, verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel. Look at this. And shall give it for the service of the tent meeting. So this shekel piece is going to go towards the a continuation and care and upkeep of the, of the temple, of the tent. That it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. Buy-in, skin in the game. That's what God is asking as he asks for the free will offering. Here we go, verse 17. This, this is beautiful, dude. Check this out. The Lord said to Moses... You shall also make a basin of bronze. Many of you guys have made this before. With its stand of bronze for washing, you shall put it in between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister, or to burn food, a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. The washing is so a critical, they may not die. They uh, shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him, to his offspring throughout their generations. Now, there is a cultural shift on this issue. Okay, I grew up in the non-antibacterial uh, liquid generation, all right? I grew up in the generation when you fell and you scraped your knee, mom's or grandma's saliva made it better. You know what I'm saying? Like, she would, they would just like wipe that blood off, you know. There was no like bandages or antibacterial. You would let that thing get infected so then your body would be more resilient in the future, right? Like that, like there were times I'd have like gangrene and mom was like, it's going to be okay. You hang in there, you know. <laughs> the other leg's going to be stronger. Okay, mom, there's worms coming out of my, anyway. <laughs> you guys, you guys, okay, many of you guys are growing up in a different world, Right? And now they're coming out to say, like, basically antibacterial lotion, it, like, doesn't work. Have you seen this? I may, have just, I may just be making this up. I don't know. I'm just, like, pulling stats out of my head, you know. But the, the premise of washing before these guys would go into the tent was life or death. What happens when you uh, hear and learn and read more scripture is the catalog starts rolling. Um, when I read this section... There was one story that my, mind, uh, that my mind journeyed to. Any guesses on what that might be? Any guesses? What, who said that? What's your name? Oh, is that Kale? You were in the first service. You common. <laughs> Cheater. Pilot. Listen to this. 
Listen to this. He was seriously in the first service, all right? <laughs> Listen to this. Pilate, before he condemns Jesus, washes his hands of responsibility. Thinking somehow that by washing his hands, that that would release him of the responsibility that seemingly is bearing down on him. And isn't it interesting that the, as he washes his hands, the one next to him is the one that will take responsibility so that those who have washed their hands of it could be free. Like the image of this moment, I'll go one step further. These priests had to wash their hands before they entered the tent. How about our high priest? Was it a cleansed process, the sacrifice? Mixture of blood and saliva and dirt and vinegar and water. Wounds and scabs. Anything but cleansing. See, the purity wasn't of the, the outward. The purity was who Jesus was. His heart, flawless, sinless, perfect. The unblemished Passover lamb. So it's crazy to me, and this is why the word is so powerful. When you read sections like this, and the catalog starts streaming today, because this is when the Lord showed me this piece, today, I just like stood up at my desk, and I was like, God, thank you for taking responsibility. God, thank you for cleansing me. God, thank you for getting dirty so that I could be washed white as snow. It's these moments that I wish the church, us, people in Christ, would start getting excited about something, man. Like these are the moments right now where maybe not outwardly, but inwardly, I pray your heart's just leaping. Because you are so responsible. And yet he's taken that completely on his own. Right? Beautiful, beautiful stuff. In the last section here, verse 22, this gets weird. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices. Uh, does, your, does your grandma or mom's, do they still have a spice rack? Anyone? Some, who, who, who here has a, knows what a spice rack is? Okay. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Praise God. Is that Kyle Bay in the back? Kyle Bay, do you have a spice rack at your house? Oh, no, that's Craig. Craig, you, you have a spice rack? Okay. The Lord said to Moses, <laughs> the man said, I used to, well, would you sell your spice rack? Like, what do you do with a spice rack that you used to have it? You garage sale it? You moved and then the spice rack stayed? You're not a man true to your spice rack, bro. Here we go. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of, here we go, sweet-smelling cinnamon. Mmm. Right? You guys ever walk in an airport and you're instantly like, Cinnabon, go time. Right? <laughs> the smell is powerful, isn't it? They got us. Right? 
and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And look at this, and a hen of olive oil. There's a point coming, wait, verse 25. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, verse 26, you shall anoint the tent of meaning and the ark of the testimony and the table and its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense, the altar of the burnt offering, verse 28, with all of its utensils and the basin and stand. You shall, verse 29, consecrate them that they may be, look at this, most holy. So you're going to take these spices and you're going to make an anointing oil and then down to the detail, you're going to go piece by piece of all of the tabernacle and the tent. And you're going to put oil on these things as a way of cleansing, as a way of purifying, as a way of a ritually making them holy. Whoever, look at this, whatever touches them will become holy. Here, here is the beauty and the, the burden of the old covenant. The beauty is, it's a shadow of things to come. The burden is some people still believe that this is like what we're still living under. So some people still believe that because like something has touched something, that now it's like the holy chronicle of God, you know? Or that because like some mud comes from the Dead Sea, that somehow because God and Israel are all connected and the Dead Sea Scrolls and then the summer solstice and the lunar eclipse, that, that this mud, by putting it on your face, will change your life forever. Or more practically, in some of your Christian superstition, you believe because some things were somewhere that they have more significance. Uh, when my Bible reads that God is omniscient and omnipresent, which means he's everywhere all the time, and so it's his finger, it's his touch, it's his grace. It's his mercy that sets something apart and makes it holy and nothing else. In other words, I don't need something else to be holy because God in his son Jesus has now made me a son. And to be a son, I have to be holy and consecrated and set apart because he ain't having nothing to do with sin. Are, are we together? Okay. So now because of his grace, what he touches in his son is holy, and that's moved from objects and out of people. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Whatever touches them will become holy. Verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons. Remember Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, the priests from the Levitical tribe, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. Look at this. And you shall make no other like it in comparison. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. A whole lot of holiness here. Verse 33. Whoever compounds any like it or puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. I mean, this is how detailed and significant even things like oil are to the Lord. And finally, ending the detail section of the setup of the tabernacle, verse 34. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, <laughs> stacate and on." Annika? Jared, how do you pronounce that? Jared here? Anisha? Okay, cool. Come on, man. You're the smart guy. And in galbanum, I actually looked this up. 
and uh, it, it is still present. Anyway, sweet spices with pure frankincense of each of their, these shall be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer. Look at this. Seasoned with what? Salt. Now we're talking my language, okay? All the myrrh and all that. Here's what my son does, okay? As good Christians do, we go to El Magwe, and my son... My son, uh, here's what he does. And initially, I felt bad about this, but now I've come full circle. My son will take a chip, okay? And he will take, he will take the canister of salt, right? And the first time I'm watching him do this, right? And I'm, at first, initially, somewhat shameful. He takes this chip, and he just, he just like, salts one individual chip, right? And he, like, he puts it in his mouth and, like, closes his eyes, you know, he's like, you know, I'm like looking at him like, what in the world? And at the moment, I'm getting ready to chastise him and talk to him about the poor state of health that a lot of sodium will cause. I'm just like, you know what? Salt is glorious, you know? <laughs> like live and let live, son. You know what I'm saying? Any, any of the rest of you guys like you some salt? Come on now. That's what I'm talking about. So if you, were, if you were disengaged through the myrrh and the frankincense, here we go, seasoned with salt, okay? Look at this. Not just seasoned with salt, but it's pure and holy. Verse 36, as we close this section, you shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. Again, God reiterates, it shall be most holy, set apart for you. Verse 37, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. This isn't something to go out on your own and try to replicate. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever takes or makes any like it and uses it as perfume shall be completely cut off from this people. Every detail from the beginning of our journey through now the end of the construction of the priestly garments, the construction of the tabernacle, all the facets of it, it's an issue of life and death. And so I get to the end of this very long journey, which many of you guys are like, if I hear Cubit one more time, and the catalog starts streaming, and I imagine an altar of incense, and a journey through the tent, and you can ask the guys in our staff, there was one text that came to my mind. It was this one. But thanks be to God, says Paul in 2 Corinthians, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Now, Paul spent a good deal of time in Rome. And in Rome, when a general would get home from war, they would celebrate with the parade that the general would lead. And that parade was, in simple terms, just called a triumph. And so the general, with all his constituents, would be behind him, that image is what Paul has in mind here. And I'm not much for parades, but I'm pretty encouraged by the fact that our general, or Christ, will never not be leading us in triumphant procession. Like there's never a parade that we won't be celebrating because the victory has already been won, Scripture says, okay? But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Look at this. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So this image of the altar of incense and the continual 
incense that's being burned in prayers that are being offered to God. Now what Paul says of us is that that we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And your question should be like mine, how does that work? Three main areas. How do we spread the fragrance? Uh, First of all, your story. If you've met with God, if you've tasted grace, if he has completely saved you, then you know what I know is you got a story to tell. And unfortunately, too many believers think that they need to leave out the nitty-gritty details, but listen, you don't understand. Some of the most wretched pieces of your past and what God's pulled you out of is exactly what some non-believers need to hear because they're experiencing some of those same things and feeling unforgivable and you are proof that even a wretch can be forgiven. So your story, please don't hesitate in sharing it. Or please, if you grew up in the church, you sinned four or five times in your life, I'm joking, but... You know, you spent all of your time in the church and you don't feel like, you know, you weren't a drug dealer, you weren't, you know, this or that, you, have a, you don't have a story to tell, you receive God's grace just the same. Celebrate your story. Our story is the first way, not the main way, but the first way that God can use us as a fragrance. It's the most basic way. The next way is with his word. Do you want to meet with God? Because our access is all the time and through his scripture, what begins to happen We've shown it uh, twice tonight. Like the catalog starts reeling. And all of a sudden, the story of Pilate comes to mind. Or all of a sudden, this text in 2 Corinthians comes to mind. And the power of God's word is, though a a non-believer, the word of the cross is foolishness. Pretty soon, when you begin to speak the truth of the scripture, you realize you're no longer speaking your words, but God's. And God's are way better. Your story is powerful. It's quintessential. People need to hear it, but his words, his words, inerrant, flawless motive, pure and about his glory. And so you'll find that I get to experience every single week in preaching, when you preach God's words, it's so powerful because God just does what God does. That's the second way. The third way is with your life. My favorite H word, hypocrite. It bothers me so much what we think that that means. So a non-believer won't come in this building or connect to Christians because of two things. Number one, they feel judged. Number two, Christians are hypocrites. If you've been around here a minute or two, you know my belief on hypocrisy. What's hypocritical about saying, I'm a wretch in desperate need of God's grace? So I will fail. And in my failure, I'll receive God's grace, quickly repent, and turn and run to him yet again. What's hypocritical about that? Listen, I've called my shot, not less than the bar. I've called my shot. I will fail. It'd be different if I stood up and said, guys, look. Like, I'm flawless. I'm I'm wearing a stinking purple shirt tonight, you know? I will not sin, I will not fail you, I will always say the right thing, I will always have the right motive. And then what happens? You start trying to pick me apart because you want to prove that I am failed and flawed. Well, think about it the other way. When we don't claim perfection, desire God's grace and communicate that, what does the non-believer do? They're kind of stuck. Okay, yeah, like I, guess, I guess you're just going to receive God's grace then. 
yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And that's the same grace that you can have. That's how we are a fragrance to those around us. Now, he goes on. Look at this. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In Christ, you're an aroma either way. You're an aroma either way. He goes on to to say this. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To some, your story, the words of God that you share, and your life, it'll be confronting someone who will literally spend an eternity separated from God in hell. And you're like, Mark, why do you say hell? Because it's real. Listen, we're not some new age church that doesn't believe that there's no condemnation or that there's no hell. No, outside of Christ, an eternity separated from him, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so as a fragrance, sometimes it's going to be confronting those who will say, Jesus can take it. Jesus said himself, I haven't come for peace, but I've come for division. Why? Because whatever you say about me in Christ, it will separate families like many of you know, brothers and sisters like many of you know, friendships like many of you know. What you say about Jesus is what unites or in Christ separates. But to the other, a fragrance from, look at this, life to life. And I love this. Here's your encouragement. If you're like, I'm not a fragrance, or if I am a fragrance, man, I'm a bad one. Right? Some of you guys feel that way right now. Like the raunchiest smell you can ever imagine. That's the way some of you feel in Christ. That's why Paul says, who is sufficient of these things? In another part of scripture, he says, of all the sinners, I'm the worst. Like, who is sufficient to properly be a fragrance for Christ? And the point is, no one apart from him. No one. But here's his encouragement. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as men with right motive, as men, women who care, as commissioned by God, which we are in Christ, in the sight of God. Look at this, and I love this. We speak in Christ. And I love the way he phrases that because the we speak in Christ, I feel like would be like saying, and we speak in Chinese, or we speak in English, or we speak in Spanish. Instead, we speak in Christ. That's the language we talk. That's the life we live. That's the fragrance and the aroma that we give off. All of the detail, all of the ornateness, all of the cubits, all of the gold, all of the acacia wood, all of the design so that these Israelites could meet with God. And you and I, in Christ, aren't just meeting with God. Don't just have access to God, but are literally the aroma that is a fragrance for the gospel. We've been talking for several weeks about the design, the structure, the setup of this place where the Israelites could go and and encounter and meet him. I'm tired of taking it for granted. I'm tired of putting my my prayers in some box that God somehow deserves for me to pray to him. 
I'm tired of not believing that the access that I have in him is worth celebrating all the time. I'm tired of diminishing the very work on the cross by taking the access that I have and placing it way under the priority levels of my life. And I'm just asking you tonight, is anyone else tired of it too? Is anyone else in here ready to be purged of all of the things that we have placed on a mantle and instead say, God, thank you for tearing the veil. Thank you for giving us access. Thank you for making a way. Thank you, God, for allowing communication and communion. Listen, we've been on this journey, but I think still today, there's so many of us that haven't realized what we have. And so tonight we celebrate. All of us tonight have a chance to to come in here and to enter and to walk through a torn veil and to share in this ancient meal of communion. As we remember Jesus, as we celebrate Jesus, as we pull a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, and in doing so, overwhelmingly, joyfully, gratefully, thanking God for who he is. And remembering yet again that we are the aroma, the fragrance. Why? Because we've met him. Who better, who better to show the world how great our God is. As you make your way through this tent and come out the other side, as we worship together, this whole room is just an altar for us tonight. Worship, sing, maybe gather with friends and pray. But every single one of us in Christ, the chance to celebrate. And maybe none of you or some of you have never, ever met God before. Maybe this walk of communion is you saying, God, I need you. I don't even know what that means, but God, I need you. Call in his name. Respond when you're ready, church.